online. Yes, online, you register for that. So make sure you do that, June 18th. Well, my name's Gray. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to be opening up God's, God's Word with you. Um, if you don't have a, a copy of God's Word, we'd love to give you one as a gift. They're also at the info table. Uh, but if you do have one, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2. We'll be looking at verse 11 through 12. A couple of verses, but they pack quite a punch. And really, it's the beginning of a new section in, in 1 Peter. Um, previously, he's been talking about, uh, in verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, you the people of God. You're different, you're set apart from the world. And then what he begins in verse 11, even though there's not a chapter marker there, it's the beginning of a new section uh, where he's basically going to tell you how you live that out. How do you live out being this chosen, elect uh, person in a different in a different nations, but one together as God's people. And he's going to basically spend the next couple of chapters explaining how you do that. Um, but first, we have these these couple of verses about about how we live and our character. And so we're in verse eleven of First Peter chapter two. This is what it says: Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's Word. When uh, Becca and I moved to uh, St. Louis a number of years ago, to, uh, to attend seminary, um, we had to make a decision. It's the, the rent or buy uh, decision that you, you may have had to make before. A seminary in St. Louis is a four-year program, and so we had to decide, are we going to rent a house for four years, or are we going to buy a house? And so, I, I, you know, you're throwing away money either way, right? So you just kind of have to figure it out. So I actually got really geeky about it and put it in a spreadsheet and stuff, like how much is this going to cost us? Uh, and thank you, thanks to the government for a tax credit that year, uh, it was actually even to, to purchase a house and pay all the closing costs and stuff like that versus, versus renting for four years. And so since it was equal, we decided just to go ahead and buy a house and, uh, and so we could have our own space and that kind of thing. Uh, and, uh, but really, it was kind of like a rent situation because we knew that we were moving in four years. Right, and four years is not a short amount of time, but you know it's out there, you know, and so you kind of live like you're renting. And here's the point: when you know that you're going to move, you live differently, right? When you know that you're going to move, you live in a different way. So, you know, if you get a house and you know you're going to move, like you, maybe you paint the walls or you do something to kind of make it your own space, but you're probably not going to renovate the whole kitchen, right? Because financially, that is not necessarily the best decision for the future. You know that you're going to be moving, so you live differently. It's not just true of houses. It's true of the way that we do relationships, too. You know, when you know you're going to move, um, you deal with people differently. You, ne- you know you need friendships. We needed friendships for those four years. Um, but you start to wonder. You can't even help yourself. You start to internally just start thinking about, you know, uh, well, how close can I get to these people in four years? And you just, you just live differently. And one thing is clear about living in that spot of transition or transiency is that it's extremely hard to do, right? It's hard to do well. 
Um, I know that we're kind of experiencing some of that right now, if you know about what's going on in New Valley. And so living in that in-between spot is really hard. But actually, that same principle is, is true of the way that we relate to the world. God is calling us to live in such a way as if we're in transition in this world. Now, we're not called to physically move every, every four years or every couple of years. Um, you know, some people have to do that for sure. But that's not the calling. The calling is to be in that transition spot. But as we relate to the world, right, we're called to be sojourners and exiles, as it says in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Um, and that language is not new to First, uh, first Peter. It's, it was in the first verse. Uh, to those who are elect exiles in dispersion. This is the whole point Peter is saying. You are out there amongst the nations. You're in a transition spot. You're in exile, right? And you have to live differently because you are moving around. You're sojourning around. You have to live in a different way. And of course, exile is a big theme in Scripture, right? Uh, Abraham had to, to go out from Ur, and he, had to ex- he was in exile and following God, and the people of God had to live in the wilderness in exile. And then later, you know, if you know the story of, of the Old Testament, uh, they were taken into exile in Babylon. And so this theme comes out throughout Scripture, and of course how we relate it to our own lives is how are Christians supposed to live in the world? Right? How are we supposed to engage with this world? What's the right way? And the, the typical biblical answer that's given that I think is a pretty good one uh, from John 17 is that we're supposed to be in the world, but not what? Of the world, right? So we're in the world, we're present here, uh, we're still pursuing good things, we're still, if you will, painting the walls, we're still here, but we're not redoing the kitchen, we're not of the world, right? We're, we're, we're of a different nature. And so those two things are hard to balance, and at times the church has kind of balanced on one side or the other. So for various parts of church history, you know, uh, Christians have been accused of not really being in the world, right? We, we kind of separate ourselves out into a ghetto, and we're over on the side over here, and we have this little holy huddle going on, you know, where we just are only con- concerned about the Christian things, and some people still accuse Christians of, of doing that. You know, and we, we have like our Christian business directories. I only want a Christian to fix my toilet. And, you know, I, you know we, we do these things to kind of like section ourselves off. Uh, and, of course, what's lost when we do that is a sense of mission, right? A sense that we're in the world. We're supposed to be here in some sense. But I actually think, and this, this passage challenges us, that the greater danger for us as Americans and maybe even here more in particular is the other side of that, which is that we've identified with the world so much that sometimes we're virtually indistinguishable. That's also the struggle that we have. The danger we have is that we can be typical Americans, right, and do typical American things, and then as churchgoers, we sprinkle in a little bit of of God and Jesus, and, you know, because we're religious people, but basically at our core, what identifies us is whatever, X, Y, or Z. At the end of the day, do we have the same passions, the same desires, the same view of money, the same view of sex, the same view of entertainment as the culture around us? Or are we different? In some sense, we have to be different. That's what Peter's saying just previously in in the verse that we talked about last week. You're a chosen race. 
You're a royal priesthood. You're set apart to be God's own possession. There's something that's got to be uniquely different about the way that you approach things. There has to be. And so that's the main point I want us to see today. Christians are called to have a noticeably different way of life. Christians are called to have a noticeably different way of life. It's not to say we're supposed to section ourselves off and hate the world and never and feel like we're so different than everyone else. But there should be a noticeable difference in the way that we live. And I want to ask this question, what should be different? What should be different? And that's actually the subject of the next couple of chapters of 1 Peter. He's going, to, he's going to go on to say, hey, your personal conduct should be different. Your view of government and authority should be different. Your, your view of marriage should be different. All of these things should be different. And so we're just starting with the first two verses today. Uh, and uh, it, they really have to do with Christian conduct. How are we supposed to live personally. And so I want us to see two things today of how we live differently. The first one is this. We live a different life internally. All right, we live a different life internally. What that means is that we say no to ourselves. We say no to the passions of the flesh. What it says in verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's something different. There's, some, there's a struggle going on inside of Christians that we fight against the flesh. And that word abstain, you abstain from, from the flesh, it actually means to put distance between. You're supposed to put distance between yourself and your flesh. So what, is this, what does this mean? I just want to ask a couple of questions. The first is the what question. What are these passions that we're supposed to abstain from? And then why? Why should we abstain from them? Why should we put distance between ourselves and them? So what is it that we're actually talking about? He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. What does that even mean uh, to abstain from those things? Well, he just uses it kind of as one phrase, hey, don't do the passions of the flesh. But actually, Paul in Galatians gives us a much bigger definition of what the passions of the flesh are. And so Galatians chapter 5 says this, verse 16 through 21. I think it'll be on the screen for you as well. He fills out what this is. I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Same phrase there, passions of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. He's about to give you a laundry list of this is the passions of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's an intense passage. He says, these are the the passions of the flesh. He gives a list, but at the end of the list, he says... And things like this, right? This is not an exhaustive list. But the key is closer to the top of that. He says, the flesh and the spirit are opposed to each other. um, And to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. This is the key to understanding what the passions of the flesh is. The passions of the flesh is when you do what you want to do without reference to God. 
That's what the passions of the flesh are. When you do what you want to do without reference to the authority in your life, whatever God says about this area, you just ignore that and you go with whatever you want to do. And the, the thing is, is that we're built to be passionate people, right? That's not a mistake. You have desires. You have passions that are built into you. God gave you those desires, desire for relationships, the desire for food, desire for sexuality. These things are built into us, right? Um, but what sin has done is it's broken these things and twisted them so that when, when we pursue after some of these things, it's without reference to God's intent in that. Let me give you an example um, <laughs> that... I have to tell this story before my oldest son gets too old and gets too embarrassed about this. So you, you can't hold him to this if, if you know him when he's a teenager. But um, Cademan, my oldest, four years old, uh, this was about a year and a half, two years ago, uh, <clears throat> he demonstrated the passions of the flesh. He, uh, he used to play with um, a key that we have to our, to our back door, out to the backyard. Uh, there, we just leave a key in there, and so we can lock it and un- unlock it easily. And when he was tall enough, he used to touch it and play with it. And I don't even think he knew what uh, the point of the key was. Like he didn't really know. He was just he knew that we did it sometimes, and so he would reach up and do it. And we would tell him no every time. Don't do that. Don't play with the key. And then, as fate would have it, of course, uh, one day Becca and I are walking out our backyard for some reason. I'm not sure what it was, but we both step outside for a second. And uh, we, Caveman's inside, and he's right, right in our living room, right next to the door. We can see him through the glass door. And he reaches up, and he starts playing with the lock, right? And I see it just in time to, like, run up to the door and say, don't, don't touch the lock. And then I hear, click, <laughs> right? And now I'm locked out of his life. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't get it right away. He really doesn't. Uh, he's looking at me, and he starts to fiddle with it again. I'm saying, unlock the door, unlock the door, through the door. Um, and he just is not getting it. And then I just see this wave of comprehension go over his face as he realizes the situation that he is in right now and the power that he has. And I can just see the sin in his heart just, like, coming out. Um, and he, so he just starts, like, walking away from the door, like... This is amazing, you know, like, what am I going to do? Uh, and then he just has this decision moment. We're, like, beating on the door, and, uh, and he runs into the kitchen. We can see him from the back door, opens up the freezer, uh, and starts climbing it. This is a side-by-side freezer. He starts climbing a ladder to the top, grabs the Costco-sized bag of frozen M&Ms that are in there, hops down, takes it, and upends it onto the kitchen floor, in its entirety, and then just starts swimming in it. Like, he just starts <laughs> just putting all this, these M&Ms in his mouth, and he is bathing in it. It's ridiculous. And it just, you know, we're beating on the door, and we realize it's not going to work, and so we eventually run around the house and get into one of the cars, open the garage door, go back through, and, uh, and he's just covered in chocolate. It's, like, all over his body. Passions of the flesh. So clear, Right? Because what he did is he locked us out. We're the authority figures in his life. And he locked us out. And then without that authority there, it's like, what am I going to do? That's the passion of the flesh. And we do the same thing. We feel like we can lock God out of certain parts of our lives. And like, you can speak to me in this way because I'm comfortable with this. But when it comes to this other area, 
Uh, I'm just going to lock you out, and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That's the passions of the flesh. It's, it's, it's doing what we want without reference to the authority in our lives, which is God. And so when he, maybe he says some things that we don't like or uh, says something that, that culturally just makes us feel uneasy. And so we just ignore that part of the Bible or, um, or who God is, and we follow him where it's convenient for us. This is the challenge for us. We're supposed to live differently as God's people. We have an internal struggle against the flesh. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we do this? Do we lock God out of certain parts of our lives when it's convenient? Do we give generously, but when we feel like we have an abundance? Do we rest? I mean, God commands us to rest, right? We should rest Sabbath. Um, we do that when we crash or when we've satisfied our work idolatries enough and we feel like, oh, okay, now I can step away from my work rather than it being a regular rhythm of our life. Do we connect with community, live authentically with one another, sharing each other's burdens? We do that when we're not too tired, when we don't have anything else going on. Do we care, we, we care about the, the orphan and the widow, the lost and the least? True religion, right? James tells us is to care for those, to be Christ-like to those people. Do we do that? Yes, we do that when it fits in our schedule, when it makes sense to us. We will seek purity when we're in accountable relationships or when we feel like we're going to be discovered. We have to fight against this. I want to ask us an intense question um, that I think the text is asking us to consider. It's, are we, are we Christians or do we just do what we want to do and, and baptize it with, uh, with Christian terminology or whatever? At the end of the day, do we do what we want to do? Are we basically just the same as everyone else except we come to church on Sundays or maybe we pray occasionally or whatever, um, are we actually different people? Because Christians fight against the flesh. Um, we, it's, it's a war. That's what it's described as here. The passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And of course, we can't do this all the time. Our desires are bent and broken. It's why we need Jesus and we're, we're heading there. So don't, don't hear that this is condemnation and shame. It's not. But it is a question to, to ask yourself, is there a sense of struggle? Or do I just find myself capitulating, giving in to the desires of the flesh when it's convenient to me? Or do you struggle against those things? Why do we need to abstain from this? This is the beautiful good news of this. The reason why we abstain from the flesh is not because God is some distant deity with his arms crossed, looking at us and saying, hey, I've got six hoops for you to jump through, and I want you just to jump through them. These are my commands. This is my way of life. This is what I want you to believe, and so just go do it, and don't ask questions. That's not the God that we serve. The God that we serve is saying, I want what's best for you, and even though you don't understand it, you might not understand that a huge, giant Costco bag of M&Ms wouldn't be good for you, right? But, but if you live in my way, then you will see how good and beautiful it actually is if you follow after me. He's not some distant authority. He, 
He desires what's best for us. He, this whole point is that it's waging war for your soul, right? That's beautiful. Um, you are being preserved. Your life is being preserved when you abstain from just doing what you want to do. That's the first point. We, we live differently internally. We, we wage war against the flesh, and that's always going on. It does get easier, by the way, uh, in some ways. There's always a struggle going on, but the, one of the beautiful things is that the more you follow after God, the more you see His way is beautiful. And so it's less of a war, um, but it's always a struggle, and it's beautiful because God wants what's best for us. We live different lives internally. The second point is this. We live a different life externally. The way that we live to the world matters. Not just the struggle that's going on in our hearts, but what we, the way that we actually live. This is um, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what this passage is telling us is that what we're called to is to live in such a way that draws attention to God's work in our lives. We're called to live in such a way that, that draws attention to what God is actually doing in our lives. This is the missional side of this, right? We don't just live different internally and just like, oh, we're people who don't do these things off, on the, off in the corner. And, you know, if we were that way all the time, then people would rightfully accuse us of you just think you're better than us and you're separated from us. No, there's a missional aspect to this. Not only are we struggling internally, but we're, we're, we're bringing it to other people, to the world, to see what God is actually doing in our lives. I want to ask the same questions again. What, what does this life look like in front of other people, and then, and then why? Why should we live this way? So the first question is, what? What are we talking about? We're supposed to live amongst the Gentiles honorably, um, and so that they can see our good deeds and glorify God. So what does it mean that they're supposed to see our good deeds? I don't know about you, but when I, when I think about that phrase, good deeds, I kind of think of a sticker chart for my kids. You know, oh, you did a good deed, you get a sticker. Uh, and, you know, not that that's a bad thing to do with your kids, uh, but it kind of has this like, oh, I did a good deed. I cro- you know, helped the lady cross the street or, or something like that. I've done my good deed for the day. But that's actually not what it means here. So this is good, not in the sense of morally good or evil, but actually in the sense of compelling or beautiful and the deed side of that is not like just like an action that you do, but it's actually the way of life, right? This is, this is your practices, you might say. So a totally legitimate way to, to translate this would be so that other people can see your beautiful way of life and then glorify God on the day of visitation. We are called to live in such a way that other people think that that's beautiful. I'm drawn to that. People speak against this, and they will. I mean, this passage guarantees that other parts of Scripture do as well. When people speak against you as evildoers, people will do that, right? Uh, if you're living faithfully, people will be doing that uh, to you. Why? Because the Bible says um, 
people love darkness rather than light, right? They don't like to have their deeds exposed. And so if you act in a way that's holier than someone else, uh, it doesn't matter if you're trying to be humble about it. It's going to come across to them as something they don't like, and they're going to speak against it. But what this passage is saying is we, we live such beautiful lives that at, when that point happens, when they speak against it, it falls flat. It's empty. You know, it doesn't have anything to stand on because we live in such a compellingly beautiful way that what they're saying just falls flat. That's the challenge. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we living this way? First of all, are people speaking out against us? Um, Because maybe we're so blending in with everyone around us that there's never a point where, where our lives look any different from anyone else's. But if they are different, are they different in beautiful and compelling ways? What would that even look like? It means doing things, countercultural things that everyone recognizes as good. This is true, I think, maybe even especially in the suburbs where we are. Having people in your home is a revolutionary thing to some people. Actually practicing hospitality, right? Serving somebody a meal, Bringing somebody a meal, one of your coworkers who's had a baby or whatever, or just randomly, a batch of cookies. These kinds of things don't happen as much outside of our circles. Staying up late just to talk to someone about their problems without making it about you at all. Completely countercultural. Crying with someone who's hurting, not avoiding them, but seeking out their pain and being there. Here's something countercultural. Actually speaking well of your spouse in public. People see that, and it's beautiful and compelling. Refusing to gossip when other people are. Now, here's where people will hate you, and they'll love you for this, right? If you, got, if you refuse to gossip or you call somebody out on it, they'll revile you for that, right? That's what the Scripture says. When they speak against you as evildoers, they will do that because they want you to be like them. Right? But when you, in that moment, when you don't, they, they don't like it, and yet they're drawn to it. That's the goal. To do that in a loving way, to live this way before other people. And the reason that we do, the why, is because it brings God glory, and it, and it brings others good as well. It brings God glory. That's what it says. When they see this, they glorify God. Even people that are rejecting God, even people that don't love Him with their whole heart, soul, and mind, and strength, they, they still glorify God um, when they see your life. And it's also perhaps for their good. This is kind of a mysterious ending to the, to the verse. You see, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What does that phrase mean, on the, on the day of visitation? Uh, it's somewhat mysterious because that's, a, that's an Old Testament phrase, and Um, it's used both in positive context and negative ones, right? It's used of judgment, right? Um, The day of visitation, when God visits his people in judgment. But it's also used in the context of mercy. God visits and extends mercy to people. And I think that, that balance is what we're supposed to see here. I don't know which one it is exactly, but that we live in such a way that glorifies God and perhaps draws people to him. So that they recognize, hey, you're not just a better person than me, but you have something that I don't have, and they can glorify God in his mercy. 
to, to see, for people to see us living beautiful and compelling lives is what we're after here. I've been meeting with a guy um, that uh, is kind of spiritually searching, uh, not sure what he believes, but he's, he's kind of wanting to know more about Christianity, and so he called the church and he said, you know, my life's kind of falling apart and I want to meet with somebody. We got together, uh, been meeting with him for a couple times, and uh, the the funny thing is, is he's very open. He's very grateful for my, for the time that I'm giving him. But he always wants to pay for everything, you know. Uh, he he's every time he wants. He's like, right, I'll meet you here. I'm paying for your gas. Uh, I'm paying for your food, and then also I'm going to pay you for your time. Um, because in his mind, like what what we're doing is it's 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 quid pro quo, right? It's this for that. It's you're helping me with my life and I'm going to pay you for it. And nothing wrong with buying your pastor a meal, by the way, but um, and this, I'm so glad in that moment to be able to say to him, I got this, dude. Don't worry about it. You know, uh, I'm well taken care of. The church takes care of me. Let me take care of you. So I'm so happy to do that in that moment because it's countercultural. He just can't understand that, right? That I, I'm getting something without paying for it. And I hope that he sees it as beautiful. Because there's something deep inside every single heart in this room that longs for that to be true. It's why we see the gospel as good news, right? That Jesus, not, not based on anything we have done, would do this for us and give us this free He is he is the model for this. I mean, he, no one ever lived to put aside his passions, right? Like he did. The passions of the flesh. He abstained from those. Jesus did. Doesn't mean he wasn't tempted. He, he was tempted in every way like we are, Hebrews tells us. But, but without sin, he didn't cross the line. He didn't, he didn't give in to the passions of the flesh. But it's not to say he wasn't passionate. He did desire things. What did he desire? He desired to do the will of the Father. He said, I'm always working for my Father. That's what he says in the Gospels. My food, my drink, is to do the will of the Father. I live for this. And he gave up what he desired um, for us. He gave up a good desire. His desire was to be with the, with the Father and the Spirit and the Trinity forever. I mean, that's a good thing, but he gave that up. Philippians 2 tells us, Though he was in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, and even went to death on the cross for our sake. He did that for us. He gave up a good passion in order to redeem us from our improper passions. If you're in him, then you have what your heart longs for, which is getting something that you don't deserve. It's compelling. It's beautiful. I hope you see it that way. But not only did he give up those desires, but he also lived with the Gentiles in an honorable way, right? Nobody ever lived as he lived, the Bible says. Uh, and you don't even have to be a Christian to agree with that statement. The impact that Jesus had to live before people, they saw his beautiful way of life and they give glory to God, either in accepting him or rejecting him. They give glory to God. If you're in Christ, you have that 
hope already. But the challenge today is to look at your life and to ask yourself some hard questions about it. Am I living in a different way? Is there a different internal struggle that I sense from people around me? Is there a different external way of life that people would find beautiful or compelling? Different, but also attractive. Is there that element in my life? Or do I basically, have I just kind of been sucked into Americanism or whatever-ism, my certain tribe, my certain way of life, my certain views on entertainment, my way of understanding money, and I, those are the things that I'm passionate about. Those are the things that I think about a lot. That's kind of what defines my life. And then I go to church on Sundays. We're different. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That is your calling. You're different. You're set apart from the world. You still love the world. You live beautifully before them, but you're different from them. What needs to change in your life so that that is actually true? Let's pray. Thank you for emptying yourself, Jesus. For giving up the good thing you have with the Father and the Spirit. Humbling yourself to the point of the cross and being raised in newness of life on our behalf. God, you did that for us so that we can see how beautiful a thing it is to live in the way that you've provided, Lord. Pray that you would wake us up, that we would be a different people, that we would truly be a holy nation, not in a weird way, not in a way that makes people hate Christians, God, but that we would actually be different and that people would love that, would be drawn to us and would give you glory. We confess that we don't even know how to do that well, but I pray by your Holy Spirit you would change us so that we're wanting that, desiring that, and living for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.